come a little closer, madam. I want to tell you about something your children will love. This is Ghouls Only Cast, a podcast about lesser-known films across all genres. Who wants to die for art? I told you, no more deaths in the house! Hey everyone, welcome back to Ghouls Only Cast. This is episode 11, and as always, this is Meg. Today the film I'm going to be talking about is The Fan, or in its original German, Der Fan, from 1982. I've realized now that almost every movie I've discussed on this show so far has been made between 1982 and 1986, which is absolutely unintentional, but I guess it just gives more of an indication of my personality, I suppose. Anyway, this movie is a horror film in its own right, but just the same, it can be seen as a macabre coming-of-age story or a dark drama. Truth be told, the horror aspect of the fan is not what you typically think of when you think of scary films. It's more of a sustained sickness and tension that holds your hand through half of the film and then gradually starts squeezing tighter and tighter until your fingers turn purple. The plot of the film is simple enough in its bare-bones form, which is that it's the story of a teenage girl who is absolutely in love with a pop idol to the point of obsession and the aftermath of her obsession. That kind of seems like rather a trite plot and possibly even boring, but the places that the film goes afterwards are unlike anything you could possibly expect. The film also has subtext about Nazism and fascism through the lens of seeing a pop idol as a stand-in for a god, and letting yourself be swayed by them to the point where you may believe that you do have some sort of relationship with them, because the whole stage is set up that way. Pop artists sing about being in love with a universal you, thinking you're beautiful and all that garbage, and you, an individual, are meant to believe that it is about you. Your brain releases chemicals because pretty person likes me, and you fork over your money to them. This tactic goes back as far as the Beatles having to hide their marriages to keep the unwavering devotion of young girls or the endless contests around the concept of winning dates with heartthrobs like Tab Hunter. I'm sure it goes back further in different iterations because we, as humans, are usually pretty easy to manipulate if someone tells us that they love us or we're beautiful. I remember vividly the first time I saw the fan. I was spending Thanksgiving Day watching a stack of films rented from Scarecrow Video here in Seattle. In between bites of mashed potatoes and pumpkin pie, I was doubled over in horrific menstrual cramps and generally hating my life so much. I took three ibuprofen and sat down to watch the fan, figuring it would just be a straightforward watch that would offer me dull moments to just grind my forehead into the arm of the couch while pressing my heating pad as deeply into my stomach as I could stand. What first caught my attention is just how beautifully shot the film is with this up-close and intimate framing, and how striking the young girl playing the lead is. Then I was reeled in by her dreamlike voiceovers wherein she tells the object of her affections how she feels about him, and how those soft proclamations get darker until she sounds like a raving lunatic. And then, when she actually meets her personal god in the flesh, I was sitting up in my seat, completely devoid of any pain, but a genuine strain was in my eyes caused by not blinking, due to shock. 
I was not at all prepared for what this film had in store for me, not because of explicit gore or anything like that, but because I was settled into thinking that the film was going to go a certain way, and it completely turned the wheel at the last moment and held my attention to the very last second. There are not many films where I sit stunned as the credits roll, but The Fan is one of these instances and still continues to be every time I see it. I immediately purchased this film upon completion and have watched it many, many times since. And the last third of this film never ceases to create a, just a strange twist in my stomach. So I think before I get into the specifics of this film, I want to just give a rundown on the topic of celebrity worship. Fan obsession is not anything new, of course. I mean, I'm sure that you've been intensely attracted to someone famous that you knew that you couldn't have and became irritated when they got married or were seen canoodling in the street with someone that was not you. But it can go beyond surface attraction and become an all-consuming detriment to someone's whole life. You can become physically ill and fall into deep depressions that are equal parts debilitating and inexplicably intoxicating. Clinically, a person's fanaticism can eventually be diagnosed as Celebrity Worship Syndrome, or CWS for short. Written observations of what would be eventually known as CWS date back as far as the 19th century, with many different levels of obsession that raise from relatively harmless to psychopathic. General stalking of average people doesn't fall under the umbrella of CWS, but a lot of the same behaviors are shared. The lowest level of celebrity worship syndrome is your typical, you know, I follow this person on Instagram, I look at pictures of them, maybe I've saved a few of them, I've run through scenarios in my head where we meet, you know, very benign stuff. But a study that was done in the mid-2000s about teenagers, girls, they are often negatively impacted by even this minor level of celebrity worship, and it fuels low self-esteem and disordered eating. The next few levels of celebrity obsession tread more into the arena of genuine neuroticism and mental illness, such as seeing a celebrity as their true soulmate or convincing themselves that they are indeed in a relationship with a celebrity. This latter part actually makes up about a quarter of all stalking cases, some of the most famous victims being Mila Kunis and Jennifer Aniston, and it's typically comorbid with paranoid schizophrenia. Schizophrenia and some other mental illness can also contribute to erotomania, where a person believes that a celebrity is madly in love with them too, and is using special signals or messages that only they can understand to confess their love. This kind of CWS is very rare, but rarer still is borderline pathological CWS where someone is willing to commit a crime on behalf of a celebrity or to endear themselves to one. The most famous example of this undoubtedly is John Hinckley Jr., who attempted to assassinate U.S. President Ronald Reagan in 1981 to gain the attention and love of actress Jodie Foster. Sucks to be him, Reagan survived, and Jodie's gay. And he's out of prison now and uploading relatively okay music to YouTube, so if you want to see that, look him up. Another example I want to touch on is Ricardo Lopez, who sent the Icelandic musician Bjork a bomb in the mail and filmed himself committing suicide because she started dating another musician, and he seemed particularly enraged that her new lover was black. 
The bomb was intercepted, thankfully, but Bjork was still traumatized by the event for a long time afterwards. People with borderline pathological CWS are also recorded as being willing to spend any amount of money on common items used by a celebrity, including, but not limited to, literal pieces of garbage. I know you may be thinking, there are people that sell celebrities trash, and yeah, there are. Britney Spears' discarded gum was sold for over five grand once, and William Shatner had a somehow intercepted kidney stone on eBay that went for a whopping $75,000. Sometimes you don't even need a third party. Famously, or infamously, when Corey Haim was in dire straits before his untimely passing, he was selling his hair and teeth on eBay, and people were buying it. The one thing that all levels of CWS have in common is that the person experiencing the obsession always has some mental illness that negatively impacts their self-image and creates a deepening well of stress, anxiety, and despair as their perceived love for a celebrity grows. The thing that is so fascinating about the fan is that our lead character, Simone, possesses bits and pieces of every single level of CWS that I just talked about. To see this put to film, like I said before, is not all that groundbreaking, but the amazing thing about the fan is that it subverts your expectations and completely takes you by surprise. I was fully expecting a false imprisonment movie or something, and that is not what I received. At all. So with all this in mind, I'd like to get into the details of the film itself at this point. The working title of the film was Trance, before ultimately landing on the more direct title of The Fan. The plot of The Fan began as a short story that was in the format of like reading a teenage girl's diary, kind of in the spirit of Go Ask Alice. The story was featured in a German punk scene called SAU, where an exclamation point comes after each individual letter. This scene was edited and published by a media jack-of-most-trades named Eckhart Schmidt, who also wrote the story. Eckhart Schmidt was born in Czechoslovakia in 1938, and though not a household name here in the States, has had an insanely prolific career that includes involvement in at least 10 feature films and over 80 documentaries. Prior to The Fan, he started his career as a film critic, and that led to about a decade working in television studios as a production manager. He started making documentaries, films, and as noted before, writing and publishing articles and zines about the punk and new wave music scene. Early on, he became fairly well known for being a control freak when it came to his vision for films. In The Fan, for example, he storyboarded every scene himself, he wrote the script, he directed it, shot all the sequences, and did all of the editing himself. It didn't paint him in the most positive light amongst people in the technical area of filmmaking, but he knew what he wanted and would not settle for anything less. After The Fan, he made several more films that are an absolute bitch to find here in the States. It's almost impossible. He became a well-regarded photographer and created exhibitions called Photovision, where he combines a photo, a poem, and music to create these small windows of experiences where everything but movement is present. From what I could gather, he was even a photographer on set for the opening scenes of David Lynch's Mulholland Drive, and those photos were published in a book about the film. He's had a very rich and varied career, as you can tell, but like I said before, he is not known well in North America at all. The fan was almost impossible to find here until the amazing people at Mondo Macabro touched it up and re-released it a few years ago. 
We can only hope that more interest in the fan leads to more of Schmidt's films being made more accessible here. Uh, that's what I'm hoping, anyway. The fan is Schmidt's third feature film, and many of his others, especially Das Gold der Liebe, starring two of Jamie Lee Curtis's sisters, seem like they'd be great candidates for distributors like Mondo Macabro, Vinegar Syndrome, or maybe even Severin. So, Eckhard Schmidt at the time of the fan was not like Germany's Martin Scorsese or anything like that, but he put in the work and was known well enough within a lot of television and music circles to get two growing German media fixtures as his two leads for the film. A young TV presenter and growing superstar named Desiree Nosbusch, who plays the obsessive Simone, and playing the object of her affections, simply named R, is Bodo Steiger, who was the frontman of a new wave band called Rheingold that had, at that time, recently put out a successful single and were riding a wave of popularity. With that in mind, let's take a closer look now at Desiree and Bodo. Desiree Nosbusch, born in Luxembourg in 1965, got her start at the age of 12 as a radio presenter for Radio Luxembourg, and throughout most of her teens, she was a television host for several different music programs in Germany. She was once fired from a job and essentially thrown out of the TV studio because she was interviewing Bavaria's prime minister, Franz Josef Strauss, and in an argument, called him fat. Basically, he was saying that he wasn't going to hire some civil servant candidate because they were overweight, and she was just like, I don't know why, you're pretty fat yourself. And regardless of this teenage insult and the subsequent death threats that she got, Desiree had shown a certain prowess for conducting interviews, and was given a 45-minute segment for a program that originated out of the French occupation zone of southwest Germany. One of these interviews that you can watch now, without subtitles unfortunately, is Desiree speaking with the madman who seems to always be popping up on this podcast, a Mr. Klaus Kinski. She was 15 at the time of the interview, and he shows his particular brand of mania, as expected, but has a certain openness to his body language that stops short of crawling on top of her. This was because he had reportedly fallen madly in love with her. At some point in the following years, he locked her in a cabin and attempted to grope and molest her until she was able to escape over the cabin's balcony and flee to safety. Many tabloids asserted that every man in Germany was in love with Desiree and elevated her to sex symbol status, even though it was 1981 and she was only 15. A year later, the fan came out and there was immediate buzz because Desiree is fully nude in a large segment of the film. She wanted two fairly tame shots omitted from the final cut, but Eckerd dug his heels in and said that she had fully agreed to everything with her manager present, and knew beforehand what that she would be nude for a large portion of the film. Desiree even tried unsuccessfully to sue Eckert, claiming that she had never signed off on all the nudity, which opened a whole can of worms about contract authorizations because it appeared that Desiree was not authorized to sign her own contract. But neither was her manager, who was also her boyfriend some 30 years her senior. So that got her parents involved, which was embarrassing for Desiree, and she eventually agreed to a cash settlement. Critics panned the fan, but praised her overall performance. But the real attention surrounding her was the nudity in the film. The controversy around the nudity drove her out of Europe to spend time in New York City until she reappeared in 1984 to host the Eurovision Song Contest, which you can see bits of on YouTube. 
It gives you a small bit of her talent as a polyglot, as she is fluent in six languages. She eventually moved to Los Angeles and rekindled a friendship with Eckhart Smith, who had also moved into the area for work. She seems to still be acting today and does interviews on podcasts and still does television presentations once in a while. In The Fan, she portrays this aching desperation so effectively to the point that you almost forget that she is a seasoned television host playing a part and not the singularly focused Simone that is perpetually exhausted under the weight of her love for a pop star known simply as R. That leads me to Bodo Steiger, who plays R. He was born in Dusseldorf in 1949 and got his start in music at the age of 18 by forming a band called Harakiri Wum with another musician named Marius Muller-Westernhagen, who went on to be considered one of Germany's most successful musicians-slash-actors. Shortly after this, Bodo created a group called Sinus with Karl Bartos, who played with Bodo until Kraftwerk reached out to him because they were looking for someone to play drums for their live shows. Karl went off and formally joined Kraftwerk as a member for almost 20 years. So we see here that there have already been these two near misses with serious notoriety early on in Bodo's music career, that he works with someone and they break off and achieve almost immediate success. But as disheartening as that might feel for some people, Bodo kept right on and worked with a couple one-off projects until forming a group called Rheingold in 1980. The group was comprised of himself, Lothar Mantufel, and Brigitte Kunz, who later went on to marry Bodo. They released an album that contained a single called, and forgive my pronunciation, Dreikland Dimensionen, which broke out successfully in the top 20 German music charts. At the time, there was a small but growing genre called Neue Deutschwelle, which you can maybe guess is a genre comprised of German-language punk and new wave music. It was the logical evolution of the krautrock that broke internationally in the decade before like Tangerine Dream, but it's characterized with a cold, electronic edge. Rheingold's single was basically held up and shown as a quintessential example of this is what the genre is all about, similarly to how some circles prop up Loveless by My Bloody Valentine as the perfect example of shoegaze. Let's just give a quick listen to Dreikling Dimensionen, since that's what finally put Bodo Steiger on the map. Impressionen, so far, far, far. 
So at this point, it's October of 1981. While this song is raising in the charts for 18 weeks straight, topping out at number 14, Bodo Steiger is approached to be an Eckhart Schmidt's Der Fan, playing a wildly successful and enigmatic pop star called R. Not only that, Schmidt wanted Rheingold to make all of the music as well. So Rheingold made their second studio album, appropriately titled R. It is an absolutely fantastic album that I really recommend listening to. Like, I genuinely love it. It suits the film so perfectly, in an almost mystifying and inhuman way. I mean, there are plenty of movies with absolutely perfect soundtracks, but there's something about R that just makes the film. The fan would not be the same without this album. It is an already great and captivating movie, but the soundtrack is the secret sauce that just elevates the film to a devastatingly addictive and immersive experience. You aren't just seeing a movie, you're getting a perfectly cultivated moment in time with a very specific pop culture scene, and it feels so authentic. I view this soundtrack almost on the same level of importance to the film as Alain Gourguet's composition for Fantastic Planet. Let me just play some of the film's main theme that went on to chart successfully as a single in Germany. God, I love that. It's so good. So Rangold went on to make another album after R, but there was no real success there, and the band split up in 84. Lothar Mantufa went on to form a group with Carl Bartos after he finally left Kraftwerk, weird how that works out, and Bodo eventually opened his own recording studio called Reiklang with Brigitte, his wife. Here he really shined and showed a talent for producing and sound engineering and became very famous, randomly enough, for producing and having an active role with Burger High Life musicians in Germany that were originally from Ghana. He worked with several beloved musicians in Ghana and traveled there to work on location when needed. He apparently could not communicate in a Kankasa, but was greatly respected and loved by the musicians he worked with, who nicknamed him Hammer. Bodo sadly passed away a couple years ago at the age of 70, and many Ghanaian pop culture websites put out loving tributes to him, noting always that he was just a white man who didn't even speak their language, but he cared so much about their music and did everything he could for it, which I think is really, really sweet. Art brings us together as people like nothing else. Ultimately, these two people, Desiree Nosbush and Bodo Steiger, could not be farther apart from their characters that they portray in this movie. Where Simone is quiet and desperate, Desiree is an animated TV host with a big personality and had more than her fair share of weird fans, including Klaus Kinski. And Bodo, who plays a musician, but an ultimately dispassionate and selfish one, made a name and a base for himself by extending his studio and talents to other musicians that he struggled to communicate verbally with, but gave it his all nonetheless. So, I think at this time, we should just jump into the plot of the film. 
As always, there are going to be mega spoilers towards the end, so if you are interested in going in blind, feel free to stop the podcast here and seek out the film. It's available to rent on a few different services, and if you're feeling lucky, go ahead and just buy it from Mondo Macabro. I don't think that, like, if you're interested, I don't think you'll regret buying it at all. Well, I hope you're wearing your best leather pants and prepared for one of the most atypical horror movies of all time, because here we go. This is Diafan. The film starts off in the city of Ulm, where Eckhart Schmidt grew up and the birthplace of Albert Einstein. Ulm is situated along the Danube River and holds an incredibly rich amount of history as it was a frontier for the Roman Empire. It was a hub for traders and craftsmen throughout the Middle Ages and faced a sharp decline with the establishment of new trade routes following the discovery of the Americas. About 80% of the city was bombed to its foundations in World War II, so in the film, you see a very simplistic new architecture style combined with some historical architecture that was restored or in the process of being restored, which plays a bit into the storytelling in the first scene of this film and gives you an overall look and feel for what we're in for, which I think is really important. Standing on the street is a fashionable teenage girl watching mail carriers exit the post office, and one of the men inhales in recognition and hesitates when he sees her. Her name is Simone, and she's been waiting every day for three weeks to hear back from a new wave pop star called R. The mail carrier shakes his head, and Simone leaves, heartbroken, and hypothesizes that one of our secretaries read her letter and hid it from him out of jealousy. She insists on waiting every day like this because not getting his response immediately would be like cheating on him. She decides to skip school yet again and wander around the city listening to R on her Walkman. She goes to the Ulmminster Cathedral, which is the tallest church in the world, but currently its foundations are eroding from too many festival-goers pissing against the walls for years, so who knows how tall it will be in the future. Simone climbs to the top of the steeple amongst the tourists. She imagines R leading her up there and dreamily fantasizes about him kissing her. She says that if she does not hear back from R soon, she will climb over the railing and jump from where she's standing. But she'll take a farewell letter with her when she jumps. That way, he'll be forced to know her and think about her no matter what, and that way they'll be a part of each other forever. Simone goes home where her parents are already sat down for dinner. She takes one bite of food and then gets up and wordlessly leaves. In her room, she writes another limerence-laden fan letter and listens to our song, Augenblick. In the recording, the sound of fans' cheers devolve into cries of Heil, while a crossfade shows that Simone's room is largely made up of a large poster of a crowd performing the Nazi salute in various pictures of R. R's band symbol is also a stylized SS, and R wears a simplified SS uniform in all of his photos. The next day, Simone meets her mail carrier as usual, and he says that the only letter he has is a complaint from the school to her parents. She snatches the letter from him and runs off with it. She returns to school, but is so consumed by her thoughts that she doesn't do any of her schoolwork at all, and eventually just gets up and walks out of class to go hunt down her mail carrier. She eventually finds his bag sitting outside of a building and starts going through it, which I imagine is probably illegal in Germany, too. The carrier dashes outside with a lipstick smear up his face to wrestle it away from Simone, who dumps the mail everywhere and accuses him of lying when he says that there's no letter for her. He seems overall amused by this, though, which incenses Simone to the point where she smacks him and starts yanking his hair. 
That night, Simone writes in her diary while listening to Augenblick again. She says that she knows that she's different from the other girls that she sees with R and tabloids. Simone asserts that he's just using those girls for sex, but she knows that she can truly make him happy. She says that in her letter that she wrote to R, she asked for him to wink at her when he's performing on a TV variety show that's coming up. The night of the program, Simone gets dressed to the nines to sit with her parents, who eye her suspiciously and seem to get confused by her getup because she's behaving almost as if R would be able to see her through the television screen. Her father lets Simone and her mother watch the variety show until about halfway through R's performance, which is just him standing stock still with his hands in his pockets, singing Augenblick and not blinking once. When Simone's dad says that he's had enough and switches the channel over, Simone freaks out and starts trying to wrestle and scratch the remote away from him. If R winked at her, she didn't get to see it. The next day, Simone writes another letter to R apologizing and saying that she thinks that the mail carrier and her mother are trying to keep her letters from him, and vice versa. She lets R know that she set up her own P.O. box at a different post office so that no one will interfere anymore, and he just needs to send her a letter saying yes, and she will come to him and they will live happily ever after. While she's floating along to this post office, a teenage boy who's been seen in the background in a few of the scenes tries to get Simone's attention, and is clearly besotted with her. He speaks to her with a familiarity that implies that maybe they were once friendlier, and possibly even dated before she discovered R two years ago. But now Simone will not even acknowledge him and treats him very coldly. That night, Simone has a nightmare that R's manager receives several bags of letters for R and tells the postal workers to take the bags straight to the dump. She wakes up in a sweat and goes to make out with a life-size picture of R that she has on her wall. After that, she decides that if she doesn't hear back from R in a week, then she's going to take action, which sounds ominous as fuck. Over the course of the week, the men working at the post office get increasingly annoyed at Simone as she asks if there's any mail for her every day, to the point of threatening to call the cops on her. It seems kind of harsh, but one would have to assume that she's actually coming multiple times a day to get that kind of response. She also gets into it with a teacher and leaves school, she dumps her backpack and school books at a park, and comes home to be yelled at by her father that says that if they get another letter from the school, she's going to be sent to a boarding school. After stealing a bunch of magazines with R on the cover at a shopping center, the one boy from before approaches her to give her a mixtape that he made for her, which she just bats away like she's a cat and it's a mostly dead mouse. Towards the end of the week, Simone's mom finds her basically comatose and unresponsive in her bed, but when she leaves, Simone gets right up and starts packing a bag. She runs away and sleeps in an unlocked car, which the owner is a little too nice about in a borderline sexual opportunist way, but she heads from the car straight to the post office where she stays until closing. It's been seven days at this point, and there's still no answer from R. She hitches a ride with a fat dude and his dog to Munich, but beats up the guy and runs off into the wilderness at a rest stop when he tries to sexually assault her. Now, this is the time where I want to say that I've watched this movie both subbed and dubbed, and I have to say that I actually prefer the dub here. The English dubbers kind of went rogue with some of the background chatter and exchanges, and this guy is 
like the best example of it. In the sub, he basically is like, how about we get a little friendlier? But in the dub, he lets his dog out of the car and is like, uh-oh, looks like somebody needs to go toy-toy. Let's get a little friendlier here. Don't worry about conversation. Let your fingers do the talking, honey. <laughs> like, I know some people are purists when it comes to source material, but I've watched the Funimation dub of Shin-chan way too many times to agree with that sentiment. Sometimes, dub is better. Anywho, Simone gets picked up again, this time by a really cute yuppie guy. Like, I would have just stayed with him and forgotten about R if I were her. He takes her all the way to Munich, which, like Ulm, is where Eckert Schmidt lived and worked for many years. Simone wanders around a park where she hides her belongings and spies on drug deals happening, and there's a gratuitous shot of two girls skinny dipping for no apparent reason. Simone makes her way to a TV studio that R is slated to appear at for a show taping. The show is called Top Pop, which was a real program in Germany that was like, well, Top of the Pops. A throng of fans are waiting for musicians to show up so they can get autographs, but it also appears to be a cruising situation for the talent. Like, they single out a person and coyly say, wanna come see the taping of the show? And then they leave with their arm around that fan. One of the female musicians is coldly refused when she politely asks a girl if she wants to participate in the show, which shows you why the fans are truly there. Simone waits in the distance, but R never shows up, so she finds another car to sleep in, and that night she has another nightmare, but this time she wakes up in the backseat of the car and it's violently moving on its own, and she calls out desperate for R to save her. The next day, R shows up and is positively mopped by the crowd, who practically yank him through the car window when he rolls it down. He signs some autographs while Simone watches from a distance, frozen and transfixed. He's going about his business, signing while all these teenagers scream at him, but then he looks up, and he notices Simone. He smirks, hands his pen to his surly female assistant, and approaches Simone. He asks her why she didn't seem to want an autograph, and asks her what her name is, but she's completely rooted to the spot and can only move her lips slightly. She sways and can't seem to make any sound, which causes R to say, Well, you had your chance. Come inside if you want to see the show, and then he walks away. At this point, Simone blacks out and crumples on the street. When Simone comes to, she's lying on a cot in a green room with R sitting there, holding her hand. He asks her if she feels okay, then asks her if she wants to see his rehearsal. He guides her to the audience bleachers, and the boring parts of production go on while Simone watches. R's assistant spots Simone and scowls, going over to tell R that he needs to stop bringing random girls around. Shortly after, R gets a break while some shots are being set up, and the host, who was an actual presenter on German music shows like Top Pop, works on his lines. R goes up and sits close to Simone, and she says that R's assistant scares her a little bit. He admits that his assistant gets needlessly jealous, which opens up an avenue for Simone to ask if he thinks it's possible that his assistant has been confiscating Simone's fan letters to him. He says that it's possible she did, but it couldn't stop him and Simone from meeting. That's a flirty and cute thing to say, but holy shit. R has no idea the crazy thoughts he just confirmed in Simone's mind by saying that. It implies that not only did his assistant possibly hide Simone's letters, but that he had the same sort of primal feeling about Simone that she's been having about him this whole time. 
That statement just perfectly fits into her malignant fantasies like one of those four-piece puzzles that you give to toddlers. R gets called over by the host and they share a few conspiratorial words while taking turns looking back at Simone and smiling knowingly until R takes Simone to the studio's cafeteria. He pumps her for information like if she has a boyfriend, or if she's too young to even like boys, yikes, but gets dragged away to do more work. He fetches her some time later, and they go back to his green room where he convinces her to kiss him. He has expressed at this point, through his words and his actions, that he is the one driving this whole thing and is just treating Simone kind of like a new toy, but she doesn't realize it. Strangely enough, when he demands a kiss, Simone is very timid and just barely brushes his lips. He criticizes her, saying that she can do better than that, but he's called to make up before they can do anything more. This seems predatory, and it most certainly is, but one thing that I think needs to be cleared up is that this is not illegal in Germany. It's not illegal unless a 14 to 15 year old files a complaint against the older person. Like 1 to 13, this would be illegal. 14 to 15, it's a gray area, but not illegal. Is 16 on legal? I mean, things are just different in different countries. It doesn't make it not manipulative or creepy and fucking uncomfortable, though. Like, keep in mind, again, while Desiree was making this movie, she had been dating her manager that was like, 30 years older than her. I think it's gross, weird, and unsettling, but things are just different elsewhere. And it doesn't mean that this movie is shameful or indicative of child trafficking or something like that. Anyway, the show recording begins and Simone watches R's performance, which is this really bizarre set made of several naked mannequins and R just kind of wanders around through them in a bald cap and Eckerd Schmidt said that there's some reference in R's performance to the 1936 Olympics, which I think may be referring to the Nazis' commemorative stamp of a javelin thrower, but I could be wrong. And the 80s just seemed kind of obsessed with mannequins for a time and Kraftwerk famously styled themselves to look robotic or mannequin-like? I'm not so sure. After the performance, Ars handlers wait angrily as he continues to sign autographs in the green room doorway longer than they would prefer him to. When Simone finally squeezes through the door, R shuts the door and begins arguing with everyone. They've already booked studio time for R and have a deadline to reach in order to put out his new album or they lose half a year. I don't know studio talk, but I imagine it's either in productivity or profits, maybe both. R seems to not give one solitary shit, and it seems that his career may seriously suffer from it. It's been lightly implied here and there that R seems more focused on getting laid, judging by the remarks of the host of Top Pop and R's assistant. They also said on the TV program that R has not been on TV very much recently, and he was a whole day late to record the episode of Top Pop. He says that he doesn't care if he loses six months, and he deserves a holiday. One of the guys asks him to just come in for a couple days, but R shuts him down, saying that he's leaving. When asked, R refuses to tell everyone where he's going or for how long. He's fast-tracking himself to mediocrity at this point, brushing off the assertions that canceling all his upcoming TV spots and losing studio time could possibly tank his career. In pop music, you have to keep rolling out the hits if you want to stay relevant, but R just wants to leave. Simone watches all of this in rapt adoration, 
probably feeling like this is his way of kind of telling everyone that he wants to run away with her and doesn't care if other girls won't love him anymore. R blows off his handlers without leaving a number that they can call him at and leaves with Simone. They don't really speak on the ride over for R to check out of his hotel room, just Simone asking where they're going and R ignoring her. This time spent would have been a great opportunity for her to try to win him over with her personality, like maybe even tell him about how she hitchhiked all the way to Munich and avoided assault just to meet him. Like, actually kicked a guy's ass a little bit along the way, but she just doesn't say a damn thing and sits there. This whole film, we've seen Simone as this obsessive husk of a person who doesn't even talk to her parents, has no friends anymore since she started listening to R's music, and does not eat. And sadly, I mean, that's just who she is now. But she's in R's presence, so she can't wax poetic about him in her mind. So she's just vacant. Fully. There's even a transition shot here of her opening her mouth and seemingly swallowing the camera whole, which could mean that we're seeing into the true void that Simone's character has become, or something else. R takes her to this penthouse that is set up in the way that Nick Cave and Deanna refers to as Ku Klux furniture. Everything is preserved under white sheets, indicating that whoever lives there will be gone for a very long stretch of time. R tells Simone that his friends won't be here for three months and that no one knows that he has a key to this place. He tells Simone to just have a look around in the stark cold place while he makes a few phone calls canceling his obligations. Simone seems bored by this and eventually finds her way into the bathroom, where she presses her face to the mirror and begins violently rubbing her face all over it, smearing the surface. Is completely jarring because there's absolutely no reason to do this unless you are completely unhinged or a weird child, but I guess Simone is both in her own special way. Simone finds her way to a very strange room that has these long cloth scrolls crisscrossing around the whole room, making it into almost a maze. There's this glowing platform in the center of the room, but it's almost impossible to tell what it is. It's like an oversized light box or half of a tanning bed. Ours friends are really strange either way. But the important thing to note here is that the color red is prominent in this room. Up until this point, the only red that we have seen in this film, really, has been in the opening title cards and the bandana of the boy who loves Simone. While a gorgeous film, it is also fairly washed and bleakly colored in the vast majority of the shots. But here, there are these rich red sheets everywhere that bring a depth and warmth to the palette and to the characters that we have not seen up until this point. A color that we typically associate with passion, heat, lust, love, and anger. R appears in the room and wordlessly begins kissing and gently undressing Simone while an unsettling and skin-crawly song plays in the background. She seems scared and guarded, but passive to everything that he's doing. The camera is close up in each shot and tracks R's hands fastidiously as he pulls her shirt sleeve down and then runs his hand back up her arm to her neck. You not only see R touch her arm, you can tell exactly how much pressure he's placing on it. It's a filming technique that invokes so much feelings of intimacy that you feel uncomfortable, as if you're truly intruding on something and not just watching a movie. It's exceedingly effective, and it twists your stomach into knots as the scene progresses. 
We have seen Simone act so bizarrely up to this point. What the hell is going to happen? How the fuck did she get this far? What are the odds that she would be obsessed with a man who would single her out in a crowd of people? It almost makes you start begging the question of if she's been imagining all of this. This fucks with every trope that we've ever seen of the fanatic individual. You probably thought that Simone would stay on the fringes and follow him to his hotel or take him hostage or that she would orchestrate a way to commit suicide in front of him. But no, they're in a room alone together and he's pulling off her clothes and validating her erotomania. Yes, the assistant did keep him from her. Yes, he did love her from afar without knowing her. Yes, he wants her more than anyone. Yes, he's putting his career on hold to run away with her. Yes, he's making love to her. In this scene, you truly see that Simone is still just a child, as she appears slightly frightened and has no sense of what to do. She reaches out her hand to him, as if to pull him to a kiss or a hug, and her face fills with apprehension as he takes her legs and yanks her to the edge of the platform. What we see appears to be painful, though R is mostly just holding Simone in his lap and not moving, and afterwards she tries to hug him, but is brushed off as he says brusquely that he was being too mean to his colleagues back at the studio. Simone tells him that he can act any way he pleases, but he refutes that and dispassionately says that he needs them. At this point, R is almost completely dressed while Simone is still sitting next to him naked and vulnerable. With a tinge of heartbroken disbelief, she says, but I thought you needed me. To which he responds, in almost total disinterest, yeah, sure, or I certainly did. I like to point out the differences in the subs and dubs at this point because their small implications almost totally change R's personality. By saying, yeah, sure, it's kind of rude and noncommittal, but by saying, I certainly did, he is blatantly telling her that he just wanted sex from her. I needed you then, but I don't need you now. He's fucked her, and now he's chucked her. Simone asks him where he's going now that he's fully dressed and trying to walk away from her. In the dub, it's implied that he's still going on holiday and will try to see Simone before he goes, but she should not count on it. In the sub, he simply says that he needs to sort some things out, but he'll be back. Simone grabs him from behind and buries her face in his shoulder blade. I love you, she says. R takes her hand, and you can see it slightly trembling as he has to use a noticeable amount of strength to get her hand off of him. Me too, he replies. As he walks away, she grabs him from behind again, and he shakes her off. He tells her that she could come with him, but it's strictly business. He looks at her and tells her that she made him happy. In the dub, he politely says, I enjoyed that very much. It's interesting to see these instances of differences in these, because dub R appears to be way more of an asshole than sub R. Simone is crying at this point, and R kisses away her tears on both cheeks before telling her that they'll see each other again in a couple months, because he just needs time to himself to unwind. I think anyone else would be okay with this, especially if he makes good on seeing you again. I mean, you were into this international superstar, you meet him, he likes you, he has sex with you, and maybe you could potentially at least become his friend? Sounds great but not to Simone. R tells Simone that she can stay at his friend's flat for as long as she wants, he'll leave the keys with her, and when he hands the keys to her, she turns her hand and lets them clatter to the floor. He seems bemused by this and goes to walk away. 
Turning back, Sub-R tells her that he will call her. Dub-R says that he will try to call her. He puts his hand on the knob, and Simone lets out a shriek. Pausing, confused, but not deterred, R turns the knob. Simone shrieks again, and R begins to pull the door open. This is the part where I need to tell you that the spoilers come in hard as fuck here, and that this is where the fan turns into a real horror movie. Nearby, R's friend has a chrome statue of a nude female figure with one arm curled back and the other one extended straight into a bald fist, almost like the figure is holding an invisible bow and arrow. Simone quickly grabs it and gives R a sharp, single blow to the head. The extended arm of the statue slides cleanly into the back of R's skull. He drops his hands and his eyes widen, and Simone struggles to pull it out of his head. When she does, R does not fall, but stands there motionless, which is extremely eerie and conjures up images of a film that came out four years after the fan. In David Lynch's Blue Velvet, there's a scene at the end where Jeffrey Beaumont, the main character, returns to an apartment where a man has been shot in the head but still stands motionless, random motor functions still reacting to loud noises, and only falls once he's shot again. Simone, looking full of fire and hysterical but at the same time devoid of all feeling, bludgeons R once again, and in a way that resembles a marionette being slowly lowered to the ground, R's legs gently buckle beneath him as he sinks to the floor. Simone catches him from behind and cradles his head in her arms. She closes the door when she hears people in the hallway, shuts off the light, and stares at R in a small sliver of light coming through the door's frosted windows. She undresses him, and when she pulls his shirt sleeve off, his arm stays up for a moment but then slowly falls, leading us to believe that R may not be completely dead, but only suffering from severe trauma to one part of his brain. In the dark, Simone crawls on top of his naked body and presses her head to his chest, laying on top of him and loving on him in a way that appears like caffeine-free diet necrophilia. She gets up and begins to drag R's body to the kitchen, where she stares at his prone form and his vacant face before hugging all over him again, still in rapturous love with him. Up until now, R has been this empty slate that she can project all this meaning onto because her life is ultimately empty. Crappy school, crappy dad, no friends, subservient mom. R sings in a monotone voice, but she convinces herself that she can hear something more in his voice. R's songs are vague, and she can place herself in the role of the female moment that he's waiting for that he sings about in Augenblick. R hardly shows any emotions, so she starts to think that she can find hidden meaning in his actions. Even his fucking stage name, R, no one knows what the meaning of it is. No fan knows his real name, it's such a guarded secret. So he's this ultimate enigma that Simone has convinced herself she's soulmates with. She would do anything to connect with him, even considering suicide to bring them together. But now here he is. He indulged her fantasy up until the end, and then he betrayed her fantasy by not wanting to immediately marry her and... I don't know, start getting plastic surgery to look like each other and say we instead of I like Genesis P. Orridge and their wife did. But now R is laying there dead, the ultimate blank slate for Simone. Her reality has been eroding this entire time, and her whole life revolved around R. 
but now he's dead, and she killed him, thereby connecting them forever, just like she spoke of when she talked about committing suicide at the beginning of the film. To Simone, death is not the end, but the eternal. Simone looks from R to the standing freezer in the corner of the kitchen, and we see her mind at work. She opens it and contemplates how large it is, then gazes down at R's pale, lifeless body. She starts trying to hoist him up, and by the way, he has barely bled at all. Whatever she was able to do, it was done with almost surgical precision. So she realizes that R is kind of heavy and cumbersome, and looks around, and what does she see? An electrical knife that people use to cut meat. She picks it up, and with tears flowing down her face, methodically begins cutting R into pieces and placing him gingerly into the freezer as if each piece was a baby animal or something. Though this sounds very, very gory, let me assure you that it's really not. It's shot in such a way that you don't really see anything and there's not a lot of blood or anything like that. When she first starts cutting into R at the shoulder, obviously they didn't actually cut up Bodo Steiger, but even so, as the knife comes down, you see his pulse quicken in his neck, which, I don't know, reminds you that it's just a movie, but it's also kind of cute that Bodo was in no danger, but he still got a little worried. But it also makes you think that Eckhart Schmidt was so meticulous about the way he shot everything, and that they kept it so close up to Bodo's neck, and so he still has a pulse, and it makes you wonder, was he actually dead? I think I'm looking into it too much, but eh. After cutting off his arm initially, you see Simone kind of laying on top of him yet again, and there's a bit of blood on the floor. In tears still, Simone begins licking the blood off of the floor and nuzzling it. In between each shank she cuts off, she pauses to just cuddle up and kiss R like you do when you can't sleep and the person you love is peacefully dreaming next to you. After a final big cut, Simone licks the knife clean and puts the final piece in the freezer. She stands there for a moment, seeing R in all of one place for the last time. She's gazing wordlessly at R just like she did outside the television studio, and just like the first time they met as well, Simone faints to the floor. She wakes up eventually and goes about almost as normal. She finally puts on clothes again and several pots are boiling on the kitchen stove. At this point in the film, we have not seen Simone really eat anything. We've been with her for a couple weeks, where she only ate one forkful of food at her parents' house, and R pulled her away from the cafeteria before she could take more than a couple bites of the only food she had eaten in at least two days. Simone appears to be making some kind of soup, which she ladles onto a casserole dish containing one of R's feet. She sits down at a candlelit table and eats her meal while ignoring the doorbell buzzer that is going nuts in the hallway, indicating that someone knows that R is there or might be there. The statue is cleaned up and is back in its prior position, except now it has a sheet covering it. Some time passes, and Simone is seen sitting down to a few different meals while wearing R's clothes. She takes his bones and saws them down to fine pieces, then pulses them in a food processor until they are a fine powder. The apartment is completely clean and devoid of any sign of life, except that the frozen meals that were in the freezer are gone, which I'm assuming Simone used in conjunction with some of R. She puts on R's shirt that he wore on Top Pop, puts his stuff in his car, including the keys, and heads out quietly. We see Simone sitting on a bus or train, not listening to R on her Walkman for once, and she's shaved her head like R's bald cap on Top Pop. She looks completely blank, 
totally dissociated and derealized, with no need to listen to R's music to get a semblance of closeness, because she has made them the same person, in a way. R is not an external thing to her now. She took him fully into her body in a way that can't be attained by making love or simply being in a relationship. With some confused and creeped out eyes on her, Simone returns to the throng of fans outside of the TV studio in Munich and begins slowly scattering the powdered bones of R on the sidewalk, first where he got out of the car and she saw him, and then across the street where they first spoke. She has a disturbed but quiet dignity about it that someone may have when scattering the cremated ashes of a loved one. When Simone returns home, her parents are astonished, probably because she looks and acts like she just escaped a cult and hasn't been deprogrammed yet. They let her know that they never reported her missing or anything like that because they didn't want to fuss, whatever the fuck that means. Sounds like shitty parenting to me. Simone says that she wants to go back to school tomorrow. And that night, the three of them are watching the news, and there's a report about R. Apparently, his name was actually Richard Burke, which is really funny to me. Like, okay, just an aside, it's really funny to me because I had a couple college classes with a guy who had that name, and for a studio art exercise in honoring the women in our life, he described a woman that was like a confidant and a friend who had done something disagreeable to him, I don't know what, and in the exercise, most of us made portraits, and he drew a mushroom cloud and then tried to hide it from everyone. I'll never forget that. College is weird. Anyway, it's a report saying that there's still no signs of what happened to R, but they know that he was planning to do, they know where he was last seen, what he was wearing, and what kind of car he was driving. They urge anyone who has information to contact the authorities. Simone smiles to herself and her voiceover comes back as she writes one last, seriously creepy fan letter to R in her diary. She says that she'll never betray him by telling people where he went. She says that she missed her period four weeks ago, and that she'll give birth to him anew, and they'll be very happy together. She says, I love you, me too, just like it happened in the apartment. Once again, she's twisted something to fit her worldview. Instead of the obvious rebuff that Me Too is, she now believes that that was him telling her that he loved her as she loved him. As she finishes up the letter, her pen jolts slightly as the doorbell begins to ring. What an absolute headfuck, right? That's the movie. Originally, to get past the censors, an additional scene was shot at the end where the doorbell makes Simone wake up and she's in the TV studio. None of it happened. Everyone on Schmidt's team, and especially Schmidt, hated this ending, but it was a necessary evil at the time. After the film got copies made and sent around to all the cinemas, Eckert Schmidt and a few others went around personally to each cinema to manually cut the additional scene off with scissors and toss it out. I'm unsure if any of the film still exists. I certainly couldn't find it. It adds an interesting layer because honestly, the first time I saw it, I was waiting for her to wake up at any second. There was just no way that R would immediately be so into her. When I saw her cutting up R's body, I was like, okay, so she's gonna dump the body and run, right? Tenants are going to find him. But then I saw her lick the floor and I thought, holy fucking shit, she's going to eat him. You know that line from the children's book, Where the Wild Things Are? I'll eat you up, I love you so? That seems to really apply here. It's interesting to wonder what would happen to Simone. 
The cops were probably at the door because the assistant and R's other handlers would be able to say that he left with a teenage girl and they would eventually be able to track her down after a few weeks of searching, maybe even combing his fan letters for the craziest ones. How would she lie to police, do you think? They would eventually find his car and all of his clothes and the shoes he was wearing that day. You can leave some clothes here or there, but leaving clothes and shoes somewhere is automatically suspicious. Unless Simone was extremely thorough in her cleaning, her fingerprints would be all over that apartment. This is before DNA, so they'd have to rely on that. And then, if they get that far with Simone, it comes down to what happened to R. He could not have walked out of that apartment naked and wandered off. But there's no way to prove that he didn't just sleep with her and then shove her out and lock the door behind her, and the rest is just a big question mark for her. Simone being pregnant puts her absolutely with him in that apartment, but it's all guesswork after that. While Simone spread his bones at the TV studio out in public, it was flying into the wind and even got into her eye at the end, so it surely couldn't be collected. It's implied that she ate every last bit of him except for his bones, I would venture to guess that they couldn't really touch her because there's no evidence of murder, just her getting pregnant and being a weird, emotionless, and hollow person. The placement of the clothes definitely spells out that he was either murdered, or he bought a new outfit, ditched everything including the car, and split. But no one had seen him since he left the TV studio, which is strange because he went into a hotel lobby to check out in person and even told his assistant that he was going to do that. It's just a doozy of a case at any rate, I think, and I wonder how it would play out. This movie really feels like the ultimate portrayal of obsessive limerence that we don't often see in media, and when we do, it's usually men who are experiencing erotomania, not women. It's fascinating to see because it feels so authentic in some of its earlier scenes. For example, and I'm just going to use myself here, I absolutely hate having a crush on someone. When I've crushed on someone in the past, I've gotten literally sick. Like, I feel weak, I wanted to cry all the time, and all I could think about was this person, and I'd replay events over and over in my head of when they touched my hand, the way the sunlight looked in their eyes, how the curve of their cheek aligned with their profile, with their eyelashes. I just feel like absolute trash. I was dizzy, I wanted to throw up all the time. Uh, when Simone wakes up sweaty and disoriented, immediately wanting to kiss R, I have felt that, sure, and I'm not that crazy. I want to think that a more submissive mind is more geared towards feeling positively intoxicated with passion and fantasies. Fantasies that are more towards the coyness and the dance of intellect and the blurry, heavy feeling when you're about to kiss someone for the first time and you feel like your legs might give out. The more assertive mind, and this is all just my opinion, is more geared towards an aching, longing feeling that comes more visually than mentally. Seeing something you like and wanting it here and now. Seeing something that you like so much that you continue to look at it whenever you can steal a peek of it. An inward feeling and an outward feeling. Of course, all that exists on a spectrum, and everyone has varying degrees in both of them. Passion is something that Simone has in spades for R, that even after consuming his body, it isn't even close to the end. She will have his offspring, and that is something that she feels will be a perfect love that can never get away from her. Killing him out of a split second of anger made him closer to her than a romantic bond ever could, and that is the true madness of Simone. There aren't many people who do precisely what Simone did, but love and hate are so intertwined that these crimes happen all the time. 
Simone couldn't possess R, so she killed him. Ricardo Lopez was angry that he couldn't possess Bjork, so he tried to kill her and killed himself. O.J. Simpson was angry that Nicole Brown left him again and he couldn't possess her, so he killed her. Robert Bardo was angry that Rebecca Schaefer was in a love scene in a film and was so jealous that he killed her. Issei Sagawa became infatuated with a woman and carried out a lifelong dream by killing her and eating her body. He spent time in a mental hospital before being sent back to Japan, where he was found sane and allowed back on the streets like a normal citizen. He became a celebrity for a long time for his cannibalism and told reporters that if they really wanted to understand exactly how he felt, they should watch a movie from Germany called The Fan. Love can be the most healing and transformative feeling in the world, but it can also be this absolutely revolting monster that twists people's brains and turns them into shells of their former selves. Usually there's something internal that's contributing to it, but feelings of love and passion can turn into atrocities and pure horror. Cults are born of love. So is false imprisonment and stalking. Love is why your friend won't leave his girlfriend, even when she raked her nails across his face. Love is why your neighbor hasn't left her husband, even though she thinks that he might kill her one day. Simone is a case study in how perverted and fucked up love can become in a certain type of person, and she's also a perfect critique of the extremely toxic celebrity culture of making teen idols and influencers have a cultivated veneer of being attainable. Whatever lizard brain that we have, it was just not prepared for celebrities or love songs. And then on the flip side, R is a perfect critique of a celebrity that just fucks their way across the world with no regard for anyone and steps on their colleagues the whole way. Though seriously mentally disturbed, was Simone the only one in the wrong? Or should R, a fully grown man, not been leching after a very young teenager and toying around with her impressionable heart, telling her falsities and ordering her around because he knew that she would do anything that he said? Simone was in love with R but she was not ready to have sex with him. But he kept going. She never explicitly said no, but had it been anyone other than R, she would have. When you wield the power of celebrity, you think that you can take anything that you want. It just so happens that R chose someone who could take more from him than anyone else. Simone took his body, she took his identity, she took his future, and now she wields his family's very own lineage. And that, in my opinion, is true fucking horror in its purest form. So that was The Fan. It obviously is one of my favorite films, certainly one of my top three favorite German films. If you like films like Possession, Audition, Delirium, or even Christiane F., please give The Fan a shot. I cannot recommend it enough. It is just such a fucking good movie, and it has this definitive A and B side to it, like a record. It's beautiful, and then it's disgusting, like night and day. Well, thank you for listening. I know it's been a while, and it may be a while again until the next episode while I'm off doing other stuff and getting everything in order. So the next episode will be a fun-sized one, but it'll be TBD right now. Until then, take good care, and I'm going to have Rheingold play me off with my favorite song from the soundtrack, F.A.N. See you later, everybody.
valor.
thanks for listening to Ghouls Only Cast. Lightly written, produced, and hosted by me, Meg. Music by Dan Lucas. Follow me on Instagram at Ghouls Only Press. You can support this podcast by supporting my shop, ghoulsonlypress.com. Stay cool, ghoul.